Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. As a Boston Globe reporter, John Farrell covered Senator Ted Kennedy's political career. Now, following on his biography of Richard Nixon, which was a Pulitzer Prize finalist, Farrell tackles the complicated story of the youngest Kennedy son in Ted Kennedy, A Life. John Farrell joins us this week to discuss the tragedies, failings, and political triumphs in the life of the Massachusetts senator who succumbed to brain cancer in 2009, ending a nearly 47-year career in the United States Senate. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. John A. Farrell, your latest biography is Ted Kennedy, A Life. So I'm going to start by asking you to do the opposite of what you just spent 600 pages doing, <laughs> which is to sum up the man and the politician in a couple of sentences. He was a U.S. senator who succeeded despite serious flaws and a life filled with, a tormented life filled with tragedy. That's the way I would describe it. You also write in the book that his life is an optimum lens to examine the liberal cause. Tell me what you're thinking there. Well, the Kennedys came into office, JFK came into office in 1960 as something of a centrist. He had liberal advisors. His father had worked in FDR's New Deal. Um, So they had roots in the left. But the civil rights movement and then later the other um, uh, great movements of the 60s, the feminist movement, the anti-war movement, nudged the uh, Kennedys leftward until they became, in part because they adopted the positions, but in part because they became martyrs to the positions, um, they became symbols of the American left. And then Ted, of course, has more than 40 years in the United States Senate. You can look at his career, the things that he fought for, the things he fought against, and um, it becomes really almost a, a perfect chronology of liberalism from FDR's death uh, onward up until um, the most recent time of hyperpolarization. Does his brand, his mark of liberalism, exist with the same vibrancy today? No. I would say that um, the progressives, the Bernie folk, the Bernie Sanders folks, are probably a little bit more um, enthusiastic and perhaps extreme than he was, and that the moderates in the uh, party um, are a little bit more um, timorous than he was. Um, I think that the, I think it's hard to say, and I didn't believe this when when I started the book, but I think it's 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 accurate to say that the Senate misses this 400-pound elephant or 800-pound elephant in the room. And his staff, and his um, staff, and his and his position on four committees. I mean, he was a major force. They were almost like this little island up on Capitol Hill of um, of, of brilliance and uh, liberal enthusiasm. And I don't see it there anymore. Does it say more about the Senate as an institution or about the man? 
I think it says both. I mean, there was just, I mean, because of the circumstances, the way that John Kennedy used television and then, of course, was assassinated in the way that that dominated television at, at, the, at the peak of, of uh, television and politics, and then Robert was assassinated on television. Um, I think that um, uh, they, just, they just occupied a position that is unique. Social media now has sort of watered down the political impact of, of tele television and the, the, the rise of cable news as well. Um, but, but for a while there, they were everything, and the Kennedys, you know, Jack and Bobby, they were first name people like Elvis and, and Marilyn. Um, and uh, so he, he being missed um, definitely is uh, a factor. But I think the other factor is is that the uh, the Senate has changed, um, and I, you know, in my personal view, is that it goes to the um, the demise of uh, campaign finance. Um, Ted Kennedy reached across the aisle in 1975-76 um, and reached out to Minority Leader Hugh Scott, and they passed a bill that the New York Times on the front page said, "Get this, will end the influence of special interest money on American politics forever." And of course, it has been diluted and diluted by the Supreme Court, by uh, actions of the politicians themselves. And now we're in a, uh, a position where um, it's perfectly normal for a U.S. senator to meet the press and say, well, I can't do that because the donors don't want that. And uh, that's a shame. Of course, this book was not just the product of the last X years. How, how long ago did you start covering Ted Kennedy? I started in 1991. Um, and I came down, and I was just in time to for the Palm Beach scandal, the rape scandal that involved his, his nephew. And it was, it was, it was in, way, in many ways, it was an opportune time to be introduced to the Kennedys, and in other ways, it was a, an inopportune time. It was, it, there was some rough sledding there in my early relationship with him, but we did develop a, 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 a give and take. And uh, then I went on to cover the White House and left Congress. But uh, for two or three years, I got a very good, up-close uh, view of Ted Kennedy uh, under a lot of pressure. Uh, good and bad. And then I was covering the Clinton White House when he started doing some of the um, miraculous things in the Senate um, that led to him being called the lion of the Senate. How many times would you say you interviewed him over the years? Sit-down interviews, probably only you know three to six. Uh, one notorious one um, in which I was the first Boston Globe reporter, I'm told, um, to sit there and ask him if he had a drinking problem. Um, uh, that was an amazing uh, interview. I also interviewed him for my books, but um, uh, since then. Um, but mostly, it was like you know, he was a great source. If you if you caught him up in in the hallway, uh, you know, he he would stop and he'd say, "Well, you know," and sometimes it was hard to. You know, he had a way of of mumbling, but sometimes, but he would say, "Well, you know, this thing is not going anywhere because uh, Warner is isn't with it." And and you know, if you could decipher that, um, it was uh, it was golden information. So lots of times in in, in the halls. Um, uh, only probably three to three to half dozen times, um, so like like we're talking now. How did he answer the drinking question? Um, I think he was a little stunned, um, and he immediately went from "Hey, how you doing?" to "Oh, it's going to be one of those interviews, is it?" And um, and it was tense, and he had, he had a line in mind, which was that I'm I'm going to be more attentive to my behavior, and that was the line throughout that um, summer. Um, if you remember, the, his nephew was accused of rape in Palm Beach at Easter. And that summer in August and September was the Clarence Thomas Anita Hill hearings. And Ted might as well have had a brown paper bag over his head 
because he was so exposed on the issue of, of um, sex, sexual behavior, uh, sexual harassment, um, but also just in no place to be making judgments about somebody else's moral standings. And so um, he was just silent. He, was, he sat there doodling uh, sailboats on a piece of paper while um, Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill made the case for themselves. And I've had, um, I've had the authors of both of the standard works on the Hill-Thomas uh, hearings tell me that if the Ted Kennedy who had been around three years earlier and stopped Bob Bork's nomination to the Supreme Court had been there that summer that Clarence Thomas would not be on the Supreme Court today. But because he was compromised by his personal behavior, um, his political behavior was uh, limited and he was, the, he was the butt of jokes on The Tonight Show, Saturday Night Live, and um, just not in, the, not in the position to lead the charge. You, you did this with your Nixon biography, but as a writer, what are the challenges of taking a big life and encompassing it in one volume? Um, the challenge and sort of what has over time become my thing has been to take these people who are caricatures. Uh, most people today, most young people probably know, if they know Ted Kennedy, it's the, as the, um, uh, the, the buffoonish mayor from the Simpsons television show. And if most people know Richard Nixon, it was you know, the guy that when the bank robbers are about to go into the bank, they pull on a rubber mask and everybody laughs in the theater because it's a Nixon, it's a Nixon mask. So there, there are caricatures, big personalities, as you say, who, 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 um, who filled time. And... Um, they tend to be to polarize their followers. It's you either love Nixon or you hate Nixon. You either love Teddy or you hate Teddy. He's either Teddy Bear, Teddy uh, Bad Teddy, or he's the Lion of the of the Senate. And what I do is I try to say, okay, um, no matter what he is, there's an interesting story as what he became, what he was. And so let's examine the human being. Let's see um, why he made the choices that he did. Let's what's the backstory of this particular. Um, a move by Nixon uh, or by uh, Kennedy. And biography is great because biography tells the story of a human being. It doesn't tell the story as much of a, of a political leader. And where there's black and white, biography looks for gray. And good biography, um, the, the biographer is always guided by empathy for his, for his character because it's a fellow human being you know, under stress. So all these things sort of uh, come into play. And, and those are my goals as I write. You know, not to write a polemic uh, about how great Ted was and the liberal era was um, and uh, how, how the evil uh, conservatives have um, uh, attacked it over the years, but, but to recognize that he was, he was a partisan, he was passionate about what he did, and these guys were enemies, and he had to either suffer at their hands or outwit them. So two more questions about process before we get into his life more extensively. On uh, the cover flap copy, it notes that this. The acclaim accorded his previous book helped him garner access to a remarkable range of news sources. <laughs> what were the most important of those? Uh, uh, his second wife, uh, Vicki Kennedy. I think that um, I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm putting words in her mouth, but I think that the only reason that um, she, she didn't want the book to be done. She wasn't ready for uh, a biography. She did not grant me access to his letters and, and diaries and his private papers. Um, but I think that because the, what I had done in Nixon, um, uh, it was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. It was uh, an award winner. And it was inescapable that I was serious um, and that this book was going to come out. And then in the end, she um, decided to uh, cooperate. And that was probably... Uh, along with his son Patrick, those those two interviews were without doubt the most valuable. You also had access to some key diaries. 
I didn't have access to diaries. I sort of had to dig them out myself. Um, I asked for the diaries because they knew they Who's existed. Diaries? Ted's, mm -hmm. Ted, Ted Kennedy's diaries. Uh, I knew they existed. He had a habit of coming back from Vietnam or uh, a meeting with Ronald Reagan at the White House of talking into a tape recorder and then somebody would transcribe it and it would be filed away in, um, in the vaults at the JFK Library up in Boston. And so I knew they were there and asked for them and I got turned down. Um, I never lost hope that I, that I might see them at some point. But I learned that, for example, when he came back from Vietnam and he spoke into a tape recorder about his impressions, that then, that transcript then, was given to his speechwriters to prepare his speech about what he had seen in Vietnam. And they made a copy, or the original went into their file, and their file ended up at the National Archives uh, with the Judiciary Committee files. Don't ask me why. Um, but at going through the Judiciary Committee files, file by file by file, all of a sudden, here in the speechwriting file, is Ted Kennedy's diary entries from Vietnam. So I knew they were there from that point on, and I was I was uh, I was like this from that point on, looking for more diary entries scattered throughout his papers, and eventually came away with um, um, a pretty, you know, for an unauthorized sampling, um, it turned out to be a pretty good sampling. You also cite um, and and some really insightful comments from historian Arthur Schlesinger. Yes, Arthur Schlesinger's journal. Uh, is a great book, and that was published uh, when he died, probably uh, a little bit more, more than a decade ago. But it's 6,000 pages long, and so when I was doing the Nixon biography, I discovered that there was lots of interesting stuff in the 5,500 pages that hadn't made the published version, um, including some very interesting um, material about um, Ted Kennedy. So it was, it's been probably 10 years that I known this material was there, 10 years in which I was just hoping every day that I wouldn't read about it in another news organization but or in somebody else's book. But um, fortunately, um, uh, nobody wanted to go to the New York Public Library and go through 6,000 or 5,500 pages. And what happened was after um, the accident at Chappaquiddick where Mary Jo Kopechny, uh, an aide to Robert Kennedy, was, was killed in Ted Kennedy's car, um, Arthur Schlesinger, who was a friend and confidant to the Kennedy family, went to Hyannisport and he talked to um, Gene Kennedy Smith, Steve Smith, and to the senator um, himself and to Ethel Kennedy about the events at Chappaquiddick. And so for the first time out of the lion's mouth, you have a version of, you know, here's what happened, here's what he told his family. Um, it's not a great revelation that Ted Kennedy tried to small c cover up the accident, tried to escape responsibility for the accident. Um, it is, I think, um, one little brick in the wall of history that he admitted it to his sister and, and, and um, the word came to Schlesinger and it's in Schlesinger's di a, a prominent historian's diary, so it's pretty much as solid as you're going to have. Um, and uh, so that, that was my little piece of the jigsaw puzzle. So I want to get to his adult life, but uh, you spend a, a good bit of time on his uh, family life growing up. What are the most, I think, important influences from his childhood that helped influence the man that Ted Kennedy would become? Family. Family, family, family. Good family? Bad family, but always family. Um, it was a um, an immensely wealthy family. Um, and they had benefits that few other people had. On the other hand, 
Um, the father traveled often and was a philanderer. And the mother, in reacting to that, um, became very cold with the kids. And by the time the ninth came along, um, Ted was shipped out to his first boarding school at the age of seven. So he had not just a, um, the, the wonderful summers with his brothers and sisters at Hyannisport playing touch football and all the, everything that we know about from the Kennedy myth. He also had aching loneliness um, in, in one of the schools. There was some sort of there was some degree of, of sexual molestation by a uh, by a hall proctor. Um, uh, there was a corporal. It was like Dick, it was a Dickensian childhood in, in, in some ways. And uh, and he gave a short story that he wrote when he was a little kid to a professor at the University of Virginia. And the University of Virginia um, uh, professor recounted it uh, in an oral history. And, and the short story was that um, it was about a little boy who was very, very lonely um, at school and decided that he would run away. And as he was running away, um, his suitcase opened up and all his belongings fell out and fell down the hill. And they caught him and they brought him back. And um, it's a very sad. Um, tale to have written as a as a schoolboy when you're asked to write a short story, and it sort of captures, I think, um, uh, what that was like. He idolized um, his older brothers, and he always thought um, that uh, he was not in their league. Uh, and he always thought. What did they think of him? Uh, they sort of added to that. I mean, part of the reason that he felt that way was that they were incessant teases, and uh, they thought he was. You know, John Kennedy called him a gay illiterate. Um, not gay as as we know it now, but sort of a happy-go-lucky um, illiterate, and 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 no in no way was Ted Kennedy ever prepared for anything that happened to him after the age of uh, 32, um, and never exposed to, expected to be the uh, to wear the crown. Uh, he was the jester of the family, not not the prince. I think this was a JFK quote that you had, which said, "Life as the son of Joe Kennedy Sr. had made you doomed to a treadmill." Yes. Um, Joe had decided in the 1930s that um, with all the money he had made, he still didn't have the power that he craved, that he would have to find that power in, in the time of the Depression um, the way Roosevelt did um, through politics. And he screwed up his own political career by uh, being accused fairly of appeasement um, in the years right before World War II. And so he had to pass his ambitions on to his sons. And all of his sons felt, as, as John F. Kennedy said, Pappy's eyes on the back of my neck. Uh, and when Joe Jr. Um, died in, in war, uh, John Kennedy moved up, and Robert Kennedy moved up as confidant to John. And uh, then when John Kennedy was killed, Robert Kennedy, I mean, it, it, it's really um, striking. Robert Kennedy takes John's seat in the family airplane and begins to wear the bomber jacket that the president always w wore. It's primogenitor, like something out of the feudal ages. And then Robert is killed, and, and the last kid, the, um, uh, the kid that was never supposed to inherit all this, now becomes um, the inheritor of this legacy. And by this time, we talked about television, by this time this legacy is Camelot. And liberals all over America are, are, are just worshipful of, of, the, of, uh, of Kennedy, and, uh, and, um, and he, has to, he has to cope with it. And between the time that Robert Kennedy died in, July, uh, in June of 1968 and the accident at Chappaquiddick in July of 69, it's striking how many people said, he's heading for a crack up. Look at this behavior. This behavior is, is frantic. He's drinking too much. He's driving too fast. 
um, and, uh, and, and something bad is going to happen. And, and of course, then it did. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. He married at the age of 22. You said one of the family codas that marriage vows are elastic. Now, he was, uh, she was 22, and he was 26 at the time they got married. Uh, what should people know about that marriage? Um, it's sad as much of the, as much of the book is. Um, uh, Joan Bennett Kennedy was um, um, a, a lovely young woman, went to a Catholic uh, girls' college in, outside New York, Manhattanville College, where she was a student with uh, uh, Jean Kennedy Smith, who introduced her to this hulking, amazingly gorgeous guy named Ted Kennedy. And again, nobody at that point knew that she was going to have to be anything more than, um, a, 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 at the most, a senator's wife. Um, nobody ever coped with the idea that, that she would be sucked into this maelstrom, this um, series of immense tragedies. And they had, they had one probably happy good year in, um, in Washington. He was elected in November of 62, and they moved down here. And um, so they had one year of the new frontier before JFK was assassinated, and from that point on, um, the stresses in uh, in their life um, uh, led to her drinking problem, led led or which was um, accelerated by his philandering, um, and uh, it was a, a a marriage that Gene Kennedy Smith once said was like um, a Eugene O'Neill play, a long day's journey into night, uh, just a um, Tragic in, in almost every way. The union produced three children. How were they impacted by their parents' problems? I think they were all uh, impacted. If you read their oral histories or talk to them, they, they, they put up a brave front. They say, you know, Dad tried to give us much time given the time constraints that he had, and we have warm memories of skating on the canal or playing hockey or going sledding. And um, he would have, like, people like Henry Kissinger over for dinner, and he would seat his kids at the dinner table so they could see what Dad did. I mean, he, he tried very hard to keep them um, uh, in his life. But all three of them, uh, again, <laughs> um, any one of these tragedies would have dominated your life and my life. And any, as bad as they are, they're almost parenthetical to, to, to some of the others. All three of his kids had cancer before um, uh, middle age. All three developed um, uh, substance abuse problems. I mean, it's, it's uh, any one of those things would, you know, command your or my attention. Oh my God, my kid's got cancer. Oh my God, my second kid has cancer. My third kid has cancer, right? So this is a guy that faces that at the same time that his brothers are being killed, that he's being exposed in, in public. He's got three members of the family dying in plane accidents. I mean, um, it's why the story is I said Dickensian before, but it's actually Shakespearean, and, and it's why it's, everybody is still fascinated with it today. Ran for the Senate first at the age of 30, the legal age for joining the Senate. Was it something he wanted it, or was it a family decision? It was something he wanted, but it was also a family decision. 
Um, he helped Jack in the 1960 campaign. And there was a moment there when uh, he and Joan considered um, leaving the fold, getting out to Arizona or Colorado or New Mexico and, and, and forging a life of their own in a Western state in politics, but doing it on their own. And instead, um, his dad said, um, uh, as it, uh, the, the shorthand that's come down over history, I've never been able to find him actually saying it, is, you know, we paid for this seat and we're, gonna, we're not going to give it up. Um, and uh, Robert was going to become Jack's attorney general, so that left somebody. Um, but Teddy was two years too young, and so um, they, they had this long, convoluted thing where they had to pressure the governor to appoint somebody who was tame enough and agreed to leave the seat two years so that Ted, Ted could run. And, and, uh, um, and, and, and he was installed as a U.S. senator. It was amazing as a U.S. senator. It was an amazing race nonetheless because uh, Eddie McCormick, who was the uh, nephew of the Speaker of the House, John McCormick, ran in the primary against them, and so it became Teddy versus Eddie. And uh, it was uh, um, uh, an astonishing moment in, in American history. And Everybody at that time wrote about it, the Post, the Times, Life magazine. Uh, it was more than just a local race. It was uh, totemic. I, I wanted to get this description of the Senate just on the record because it, it, it's so colorful. You, you write of the Senate in 1963 when he arrived. It was then a sump of aged men with liver spots, claws, and bourbon breath who strode the chamber with reptilian gait and hailed one another with mellifluent courtesies. <laughs> well, I probably should nod to Robert Caro and Hunter Thompson there. <laughs> A very different Senate than than today. Oh yeah, and um, I mean, the Everett Dirksen, for example, was the Republican leader. Uh, the '64 Civil Rights Act would not have passed without Everett Dirksen. The, the Voting Rights Act of '65 would not have passed without uh, Everett Dirksen. Um, the Immigration Act of 1965 would not have passed without Everett Dirksen. He worked hand in hand with Lyndon Johnson um, in the White House um, on all these things. I mean, the, the, they were. They were a generation that had come together and fought World War II. And as they left World War II, they had two things in mind. One is that government can do amazing, good, big things. You know, Dwight Eisenhower, a conservative, let's build the interstate highway system. You know, I mean, today it would be, oh my God, what an abuse of federal power and, and, and impact on the, tax, on the taxpayer. But in that golden era, this generation said, yeah, that's a good idea, let's, let's do that. John Kennedy, let's go to the moon. Again, that generation, yeah, we can do that. We can do that. Um, and because they had been in foxholes together, uh, and because they faced this existential threat of being under the um, gun of Soviet nuclear uh, missiles, um, they were together in a way that um, y you can't imagine looking back uh, today. They weren't all heroes. Um, they had to be, all of them, including the Kennedys, had to be dragged by their collars, kicking and screaming. Um, to pass that, to, to address civil rights and pass that Civil Rights Act, uh, for example. Um, and they got us into Vietnam out of uh, arrogance and, and hubris. Um, but it was an, a, an amazing moment um, in American history for, for these guys who came home and decided, you know, we can do big things. And it, that, that feeling of national unity and ambition is totally lacking today, and that's a great shame. Where was freshman Senator Ted Kennedy on November 23, 1963? He was sitting, um, uh, because he was a freshman, he got the duty of, uh, of 
sitting in the Senate, presiding over the Senate. Um, uh, and so he was sitting there listening to somebody droning on probably about postal reform or some issue like that. And all of a sudden, uh, up, up there in the dais, and all of a sudden, uh, an aide came in and went over to the minority leader and went over to the majority leader or whoever the, was controlling the floor, the floor leader. Um, and then he came up to the uh, dais and he said, um, um, Senator, your brother, your brother, the president, he's been, he's been shot. And immediately he left and, and uh, by that time, by the time he got back to his office, the news was on the radio and his staff was shocked um, and the telephone lines were totally um, uh, jammed all over Washington and it took him probably half an hour. He finally decided to go home. He gets home and he finds out that Joan is at the hairdresser and um, uh, uh, his uh, 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 kids are over at the White House for a, a play date. And uh, so he's all alone. His phone's not working. He goes knocking on doors in Georgetown, finally finds a phone, gets through to Robert Kennedy. And Robert Kennedy, the first words to him is, is uh, um, he's dead and you're going to have to call uh, our mother and our sisters. And that was his duty for the... Uh, for the weekend was taking care of the family while uh, Jackie and Robert took care of the country. I'm going to fast forward to the 1964 election when Robert Kennedy was elected to the Senate. First time you note that two brothers had been in the Senate since the 1880s. They had 3.3 years together before Robert Kennedy lost his life. How did they use that time? Well, there was never any doubt of two things. One, that Robert was the senior even though he was the junior senator. Um, and two, that Teddy was better at the job than Robert was. Uh, Robert at that time was in a, uh, I mean, his, well, his brother used to, John Kennedy used to, when he was alive, used to call him Black Robert because he was such a serious, sometimes mean guy. But he was now in this um, amazing place of, of toughness and determination and yet um, a gentleness that had been awakened by um, the suffering that he went through after his, his brother died. Ted was asked to shoulder all the um, uh, gruesome uh, duties of like dealing with the Warren Commission because it was happy-go-lucky Ted, and everybody assumed that that um, that he was dealing with this well. And basically, what he was doing, he was he was burying his um, um, his own grief. Um, and then Robert decides that to fill the legacy, he has to challenge Lyndon Johnson. Um, over Vietnam in 68, and Ted, being much more the legislator, the member of the Senate club, says, don't do it. You can walk into the White House in 72, and Robert says, no, I'm, I, I insist I got to go do it, and Ted says, okay. Dutiful, dutiful younger brother says, okay, then then um, I'm with you, and goes out and does a masterful job running the um, Indiana primary for him. And then in June of 1968, Robert Kennedy assassinated by Sirhan Sirhan. Ted Kennedy was how old at that point? Yeah, I this one of these one of these how old questions. That's gonna happen. <laughs> <laughs> he was born in uh, in thirty two. So what does that make him? Thirty uh, six. Thirty six yeah, years so old. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and uh, we have a video. The first one I want to show from him delivering his the eulogy for his brother. Let's watch that. My brother need not be idealized or enlarged in death beyond what he was in life be remembered simply as a good and decent man who saw wrong and tried to right it, saw suffering and tried to heal it, saw war and tried to stop it. Those of us who loved him 
and who take him to his rest today. Pray that what he was to us, what he wished for others, will someday come to pass for all the world. As he said many times in many parts of this nation, to those he touched and who sought to touch him, some men see things as they are and say why. I dream things that never were and say why not. You report in the book that son Patrick said the toll was even greater on his father from Robert's death than it had been on John's. Explain. Yeah, um, Patrick has, has left politics and gone on to be a, um, an advocate for um, uh, mental health issues. And so he knows post-traumatic stress disorder um, and other uh, uh, issues like, uh, uh, other maladies like that. And he says that um, in, in, uh, the, the constant um, referral to the two deaths, the constant, the movies, the documentaries on television. Um, you know, he, Ted Kennedy couldn't couldn't sit down and watch television. All of a sudden, there'd be a, you know, um, a, a clip of uh, um, some argument over the Warren Commission, and there would be, you know, there would be the motorcade in, in Dallas, you know, again, or there would be the chaos in the kitchen at the Ambassador Hotel in 1968 when Robert was was killed. And so it was, it was inescapable. It was, um, it was always there, and, and yet um, among the Kennedys, and especially among the Kennedys' men, the idea that you, know, you would uh, undergo some sort of just recognition of what it was doing to you, um, uh, or much less um, counseling, was taboo, just n not part of the, um, of the family code. You made reference to this earlier in our conversation, but he, him, he, Ted Kennedy himself, described the period after 1968 as the time of the greatest questions. So how did he start assuaging his grief? Um, one thing he lost was um, his faith for a while. Um, the Kennedys are interesting because on uh, one hand, you have, like, one of John Kennedy's friends once asked him, you know, how do you rectify, you know, uh, how you treat your wife with, you know, this religion, right? Why do you keep doing things like say your prayers at night and, you know, um, obey, go, you know, go to church? And, and, uh, and JFK said, well, you know, um, very practical. Um, you know, if, if you don't want to lose total touch, because if you lose total touch and then something awful happens, um, then you, you've lost the um, consoling power uh, of religion. So you don't want to put yourself, you know, in that particular spot. And by the time that uh, John and Robert and Joe Jr. had all, and, and Kathleen Kick um, had all died um, uh, in violent deaths. Um, Ted Kennedy lost that faith, and it was not until the very end of his um, life that he seemed to regain it. It became important to him again. Um, he said, "My you know, my counseling was the uh, you know, walking beaches and." and um, uh, getting out in a sailboat and battling the waves. But this was also a time of fast cars, women, and lots of alcohol. Yep, yep. Um, uh, uh, just no, no two ways about it. Um, Why did the uh, press not report it? Well, that's... Um, eventually they did. Even at the time of Chattaquiddick, there were there begin to be like hints in Time magazine about the senator's eye for a, um, you know, um, a comely lass or something like that. I mean, um, very gentle. But it wasn't really until um, uh, I, I think Chappaquiddick and Watergate were the two big shocking events for the press that said, 
you know, the old days of, you know, covering up for you know, boys will be boys are ended. We have to now, we have to examine character um, before we put somebody in the White House like Nixon. And we have to um, address Ted Kennedy's flaws because, my God, look what's happened. It cost a young woman her life. So on Chappaquiddick, we have an ABC News uh, report uh, that includes Ted Kennedy's statement about the accident, July 25th, 1969. Let's listen to what he had to say. The car overturned in a deep pond and immediately filled with water. I remember thinking as the cold water rushed in around my head that I was for certain drowning. Then water entered my lungs and I actually felt the sensation of drowning. But somehow I struggled to the surface alive. I made immediate and repeated efforts to save Mary Jo by diving into the strong and murky current that succeeded only in increasing my state of utter exhaustion and alarm. This last week has been an agonizing one for me and for the members of my family. And the grief we feel over the loss of a wonderful friend will remain with us the rest of our lives. You explained earlier the extra brick you brought to the story, but I guess uh, the question uh, I wanted to ask, so how many hours were between him making repeated attempts to to save Mary Jo um, and his reporting to the police? Uh, Ten hours. And It's craven. It was absolutely craven. Um, That whole time, as he went back to Edgartown and ostentatiously appeared in the lobby of his hotel asking what time it was, dry and fully dressed, um, to set, establish an alibi. Um, she was still in um, that car and still in um, that pond. And when his, when his uh, a, a cousin and uh, another aide found him the following morning, he was having breakfast with fellow sailors from the regatta. Um, and they said, have you reported it? And he said, no, no, I'm going to tell, uh, we're going with the story that Mary Jo was driving the car. And they pulled him into a room and they said, you can't do that, you can't do that, you can't do that. Still, they did not go to the police. They went to a, a phone so that he could call and talk to other advisors. Um, you know, and, uh, and while they were doing that, they saw the ambulance slash hearse go over on the little ferry to Chappaquiddick, and they realized that they had about 15 minutes to get to the um, to the uh, police um, and, and make some kind of report, um, which in its own way was candid. It, it said, I was driving, I was the driver of that car. Um, but uh, it was just, I mean, he never tried to justify it. He called it um, inexcusable. Um, he said that he panicked. Um, the, 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 the awful part looking back, the awful part for a biographer is to realize that, boy, you know, this was a, this was a crude attempt to um, uh, stay out of jail and, and establish an alibi. If his name were not Kennedy, would he have been charged? If his name was not Kennedy, he probably would have gone right to a house and called the police or gone to stopped at the fire station on the way back to the cottage and, and, and called in. But if, um, uh, um, if, uh, if, if you or I had been in an accident like that and there was no proof of reckless driving or um, drinking, then what he finally was convicted of, which was leaving the scene of an accident, he was sentenced to two months um, 
jail suspended. And, and the Boston Globe, the vaunted Boston Globe spotlight team examined all the records and said, yeah, for, for a young person with a clear record, um, that's you know, probably um, the sentence that you or I would have, would have gotten. But of course, 10 hours later, the alcohol would have been gone from his system. Which, which, yeah, and even Arthur Schlesinger immediately in his diary writes, you know, it just, this just leaps out at us. Yeah. So how did it impact his political effectiveness? Watergate was a few years uh, really after that, and it, he was possibly going to be tasked with the Watergate investigation. So how did that play out? Well, be before he got there, I mean, it's unbelievable. He was still the presidential frontrunner. And uh, one of the pictures I'm, I'm, I love in the book is that he, when he campaigns in 1970 after Chappaquiddick, there's this picture of these nuns standing on the side of the road holding a big banner that says, we love our Ted. And the news coverage of him marching in the St. Patrick's Day parade, it's like, you know, it's like the Mardi Gras with him as the, as the king of the, of the, of the parade. Um, so it was, it was astonishing how durable the, the Kennedy myth was at that moment. This was before Watergate and before the uh, church committee revealed a lot of the sins of, of John and Robert, um, that he was still, um, um, you know, a front runner that really scared um, Richard Nixon and helped prompt some of the dirty tricks that emerged as Watergate. But, to get back to your question, um, uh, in uh, August and September of that year, his staff uncovers one of a key witness to uh, the Watergate scandal. And rather than hold a big public hearing with television cameras, um, they leave it to poor Woodward and Bernstein to go knocking doors at night and put the story to, together because they were afraid, A, that it would be seen as um, political um, hatchet work, Kennedy versus Nixon. But B, you know, their guy just did not have the moral authority um, to hold those uh, kind of hearings. And they knew that he would be vulnerable on Chappaquiddick and what Teddy told Carl Bernstein, you know, a lot of nickel and dime stuff, which meant other drinking and women episodes. And once again, in 1976, the family, with his blessing, prepped for a presidential run, which he ultimately decided not to make. Your assessment in the book that of the 20 years that he uh, considered the presidential uh, process, 76 was probably his best bet. Why so? Uh, I think because it was after Watergate, um, which uh, perversely would come to work against him. But uh, uh, the Republicans were deeply wounded. There was a huge Democratic uh, majority. Um, uh, Gerald Ford had inherited uh, inflation and unemployment from uh, Jimmy Carter, so a Democrat was going to win. And um, the field that year ended up being um, swept by this unknown, out of work, one-term governor from Georgia. Um, it's hard not to think that had um, Kennedy wanted to run, that he could not have gotten the nomination, and, and, um, and again, I think any, almost any Democrat would have been elected president. Uh, as it was, Carter just barely beat um, Gerald Ford. You write about the rivalry between the Kennedy and the Carter camps, describing it as a turning point in American politics and government that changed the course of American liberalism. And not just American liberalism, but I think American um, politics. That. Uh, Jimmy Carter, when I interviewed him, said that there were three things, three reasons he lost. 
One was inflation, two was the Iranians seized the embassy uh, in Tehran, and the third was the Kennedy challenge in the um, primaries, which went on and on and on, and was fueled by personal hatreds and rivalries, both at the top between the two of them, but also among their staffs. And, um, and uh, that led, I'm not going to say that it wouldn't have happened anyway, but that certainly contributed to Ronald Reagan ushering in a new conservative era. Um, and hats off to Reagan, he, once he got elected, um, he showed us what a great president could do in terms of uh, unifying people and um, moving the public. And even though it was in a direction opposite of Ted Kennedy's, uh, Kennedy always admired Reagan for restoring uh, grace and power to the presidency, uh, which was a way of saying that Jimmy Carter had let it ebb away. We only have 15 minutes left and so much to cover, so I'm going to fast forward <laughs> through this. Um, but uh, the 1980 campaign was the time of that famous interview on CBS uh, with Roger Mudd where he, he seemed to hesitate on even explaining why he wanted to run for presidency. A lot of people speculate it was a self-sabotage moment that he really didn't want it. It was fulfilling Absolutely. the family destiny. You have a different analysis. No, no, I believe that. I you believe do? I believe that um, uh, you know, he was... You, you, I thought you wrote that he did want the presidency. He did want the presidency. I mean, he, he wanted to... He, he felt that he had to run because of the legacy. Um, and the U.S. senators were coming to him and they were saying, oh, God, Ted, you've got to save the party. Uh, it's a slam dunk. You'll beat this guy. Um, and Jerry Brown, the governor of California, was already challenging Carter, so there was like no, it, this was a, this was a, a set thing. Um, so yeah, I think he 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 certainly would have wanted to exercise the powers of the presidency for the things that he believed in, and he certainly would have wanted to whip um, Jimmy Carter. But psychologically, subconsciously, there's, there's it's a very likely explanation to what happened in the in the mud interview was that it was self sabotage, as you said. I mean, um, he, he didn't believe he was as good as as his brothers. Um, he had doubts about um, um, his his ability, and that year, whenever he got close um, to the White House, um, he he created obstacles for himself, and and he performed the best when he was furthest away. So his best moment of that entire campaign is when he's lost, and he addresses the crowd in, Mas in Madison Square Garden and says, "The dream shall never die." And his worst moment was the Roger Mudd interview when everybody said, oh, my God, you know, Kennedy is an odds-on odds -on favorite to be the uh, next president of the United States. So Ted Kennedy focused on the Senate for the next couple of decades, and it was perhaps his period of most fruitful legislation, the 80s and the 90s, a lot of cooperation with Republicans on major legislation. Uh, I'm going to show one of those. This is from 1990 on the Ryan White AIDS Act. Let's, let's take a look. Dear Senator, my son Ryan White spent the last five years of his life not only <clears throat> fighting for his life, but also fighting for the lives of all people living uh, with AIDS. This bill will help ensure that all people with AIDS and HIV infection receive the health care they need and they deserve. One thing that was extraordinary, many things about this remarkable young man, but after he received that tainted blood transfusion, to the moment he drew his last breath here on earth, he never condemned, condemned anyone. He wasn't looking for the scapegoats. Reaction? 
Uh, it was an amazing moment. Um, if you had, um, well, we've, we've seen what happened with the pandemic, you know, uh, two years ago. But at that time, this was, a, this was a disease that struck the pariahs in society, intravenous drug users, um, uh, Haitian um, refugees, um, and the homosexual uh, community. And no politician wanted to be part of it. And the, opposite, the opposing view was voiced by Jesse Helms of North Carolina, a staunch conservative um, who uh, wanted to make sure that uh, nobody in the country, not just um, gay Americans, but that um, nobody had um, sex or sexual pleasure um, outside of uh, a um, of outside of a marriage, and so uh, Ted Kennedy forging a, one of his great partnerships um, with Orrin Hatch, uh, Republican from Utah, and uh, uh, with Bob Dole, Republican leader, um, educated uh, the Senate, devised a strategy, and pushed these bills through to provide a real federal response for the um, AIDS crisis for the first time. It's, you know, Richard Nixon and the war on cancer, Ronald Reagan extension of the Voting Rights Act for 25 years, Bob Dole AIDS and voting rights, Hugh Scott campaign finance, Everett Dirksen civil rights, uh, Howard Baker um, uh, one man, one vote. Um, uh, Lindsey Graham and John McCain, uh, immigration. I mean, you can't pick an issue. Uh, Nancy Kasselbaum and uh, Ted Kennedy and uh, education. George W. Bush and Ted Kennedy, education. You can't pick um, a, an issue, a domestic issue, from that time period in which Ted Kennedy's ability to forge an alliance with a Republican president or a, Republican, a leading Republican senator was not a key factor. I mean, you know. There's the House of Representatives, there's the White House, there's other committees in the, in the Senate. But the, the key so often in many of these debates is Kennedy's ability to, you know, with John Danforth and Bob Dole in the Disabilities Act. I mean, just time after time after time, he, he forges these bipartisan um, uh, alliances. And I think it was Thomas Jefferson who said that, uh, uh, that great measures um, have to be passed um, with all factions in support. It's, Jefferson said it better than I just did. But, um, and I think that that was a guiding light of, of Ted Kennedy throughout his career. I would like you to speak about another area with his seat on the Judiciary Committee and his influence on the shape of the modern Supreme Court. Uh, we do have a clip on this. This is only 33 seconds wh where it really started with the Robert Bork nomination in 87. Robert Bork's America is a land in which women would be forced into back alley abortions. Blacks would sit at segregated lunch counters. Rogue police could break down citizens' doors in midnight raids. And school children could not be taught about evolution. Writers and artists would be censured at the whim of government. And the doors of the federal courts would be shut on the fingers of millions of citizens for whom the judiciary is and is often the only protector of the individual rights that are the heart of our democracy. So many people who are court watchers point to the Bork nomination as the pivot point when Supreme Court nominations became very partisan from that point forward. Ted Kennedy led the charge. Is he responsible for the direction? Absolutely not. They're wrong, wrong, wrong. <laughs> it started in 1968 when Richard Nixon was running for president and Lyndon Johnson was trying to maneuver to get uh, Abe Fortas as chief justice and the Republicans filibustered and uh, attacked Abe Fortas on character issues. 
which then got the Democrats to use character issues against uh, Republican nominees Hainsworth and Carswell. So this, this goes back um, in our history to the, um, uh, to the 60s. What he was actually doing there, it's interesting, was not so much attacking Bork um, to cow his Republican opponents, but he wanted to put backbone uh, among, this was the Reagan years, Reagan was highly popular, he wanted to instill some backbone among Democratic moderates especially those um, from the South. And so what he was saying, he rushed to the floor to make this speech, and what he was saying was, um, uh, hold your fire. Dude, I'm going to be launching a full-scale attack on this, and before you go home to Mississippi or Louisiana and say to the, um, uh, uh, to the mainstream that, who love Ronald Reagan that I'm going to vote for that nominee, you got to consider that, um, that your uh, black constituents and your white liberal constituents, the people that put you in office in those states, have just been told who this guy is and that I'm going to lead a crusade against him. And it worked. Joe Biden had, had always liked to think of himself as, um, uh, as a moderate and a thoughtful um, a scholar of the court and had told the newspapers that, that uh, Bork would not be necessarily um, a bad choice. And part of what Kennedy w was doing there was freezing Biden, who was running for president. And sure enough, with it, before the summer was over, um, Biden had joined him in the, in the campaign against Bork. So six minutes left. I'm going to fast forward to the last year of his life. I okay. feel like we're doing this on <laughs> fast <come> back. motion. <laughs> we can do that. Um, but uh, so he was diagnosed with his brain tumor when? Um, that would have been, let's see, uh, so it's, it was right after, it was, it was the election year. So May, May 2008. Is, 2008, yeah. yeah, yeah. Obama was running and Obama, he, had just, he had just endorsed Obama. Yeah, which uh, the Clintons reacted how to that endorsement? Not very well. Um, it was an interesting endorsement because uh, everybody expected that Teddy would um, endorse Hillary. Um, they had, he, Bill Clinton and Ted had worked together on Northern Ireland, many other things. Um, so that that was a, uh, a shock, but he was convinced that we needed to make a leap, and he saw in, in Barack Obama um, a young, a generational change, a general generational um, star uh, that could make that leap. After his diagnosis, he did go to the 2008 Democratic National Convention to speak in favor of the nomination. This will be the last clip we show. It's about 40 minutes, 40 seconds long. As I look ahead, I am strengthened by family and friendship. So many of you have been with me in the happiest days and the hardest days. Together we have known success and seen setbacks, victory and defeat. But we have never lost our belief that we are all called to a better country and a newer world. And I pledge to you, I pledge to you that I will be there next January on the floor of the United States Senate when we begin the great uh, <laughs> How ill was he at that time? It's an incredible clip because, first of all, he's loaded up with painkillers because on the plane on the way out to Denver, um, he had uh, uh, in intense pain. Uh, they didn't know what it was. He said, they took me to the hospital and I was examined by every ologist that they had turned out to be uh, painful kidney stones. And so he was sedated, and uh, then they gave him uh, morphine or some very um, strong painkilling drug. And because he had the brain tumor, there were certain words and phrases that he had difficulty pronouncing. So his uh, speechwriter, Bob Shrum, had written a speech of about 
twice as long as what he eventually gave that they had rehearsed over and over again because he was so afraid of falling on his face and stumbling and, and uh, because of the, of the illness. And they realized that he couldn't give that speech. And so they cut it in half, and he had to go out there um, and give... Worst-case scenario was he had to go out there and give a speech that he had not practiced. Um, and um, th that he managed to pull it off as well as he did is, is astonishing. It's, an, it's, a, it's a great indication of that quality of perseverance that he had and resilience that he had uh, all through his life that gave a voice to the you know, Lion of the Senate um, uh, nomaker. Throughout the book, you tell that, that really the, the issue of his career was health care. And he didn't live long enough to see the Affordable Care Act signed into law, but he spent his last months working on it. How so? Well, first of all, he um, th there's there's some sort of question as to exactly how firm a deal it was, but there was a, certainly an understanding between he and Obama that Obama would push health care and uh, uh, as uh, in return for the endorsement. And then Kennedy went to work in committee drafting the bill with all the stakeholders and senators um, uh, from the Democratic, and, and at that point uh, from the Republican side. While seriously ill. While seriously ill. And then um, he, he um, uh, at, a, at one key moment, uh, Obama describes um, them waiting to go out into the East Room in the White House and address a crowd together. And, and Teddy taking him by the hand and saying, Mr. President, now is the time. Don't, don't miss this moment. And, you know, look, I'm not going to pretend that Nancy Pelosi and Barack Obama are anything other than or Harry Reid, really tough politicians with hides of rhinoc like rhinoceros. Um, but uh, um, throughout all that thing, as he died and after his death, let's do this for Teddy was part of the calculus. And he was so much a politician that even after he died, he left a letter to Obama uh, which, uh, to be delivered after his death, which said to Obama, again, don't waste this moment, Mr. President. And Obama, when he um, speaks to the Congress and the country about the Affordable Care Act, reads from this letter. So, so, so um, he, you know, he, 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 and then, so that was the, 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 the spiritual, wonderful part. At the same point, he was maneuvering to make sure that, um, that a Democrat was appointed to his seat in Massachusetts so that they wouldn't lose the um, uh, uh, majority in, in, in the Senate to uh, um, impose cloture and override a filibuster. So it, he was constantly, as best he could, as he was losing it those last few months, still taking what steps um, that, that he was able to, to get that through. And Obama, in a very nice part of his own memoir, says that after the celebrations were over, he went back up to the, um, the residence in the White House, and he thought of two things. He thought of his mother, who had died of breast cancer, and he thought of Ted Kennedy. Well, there was lots more in that 77 years that we couldn't get to in this hour together, but thank you very much for spending it with us. The book is Ted Kennedy, A Life. John A. Farrell, the author, thanks for being with us. I like telling this story, as you probably can tell. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. 